Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Okay, we're recording. Hey, King. Thanks for uh, taking the time to do this podcast. Uh, Really excited to talk about your scientific journey and your uh, uh, research around genomics and extra chromosomal DNA. And, you know, we, we had like a 15 minute debrief already. Maybe we should record that too. Uh, <laughs> maybe we should record it all. Maybe, maybe I should start recording everything rather than just like doing some record and talk. But how are you? I'm great. Thank you, Josh, for inviting me on this podcast. Very excited for this discussion as well. Yeah, me too. I think you're, you know, you're another superstar. We'll only talk to superstars. And so I'm excited to just, you know, talk about your story and then talk about your research. And we can always do this again uh, because I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you're going to do a lot more. And uh, congrats on the new paper. That's that's news to me now. So, um, and so I'm really excited for like the more research you do. So maybe to start off the conversation and to set the table, you know, King Hung is a, a PhD student in Howard Chang's lab at Stanford, uh, and his research is really centered around using a variety of genomic tools, uh, mainly to study extrachromosomal DNA right now. But I'm sure he has other projects in the works, and he has pu- published a really awesome Nature paper some time ago, and I'll put it in the description, uh, using a variety of genomics-based tools to discover extra-chromosomal DNA hubs. And I think we'll, we'll talk about that research right now. But maybe to start off the conversation, King, maybe you can talk about your story. How did you get your name? What does what the name King come from? How did you get into science? Stuff like that. Anything you want to talk about? Yeah, okay. My, that, that's actually a great question. People ask me, so King Hung is Cantonese. It's not English. People ask me, like, um, is it, was it, was I named like I was na- not named because my parents wanted me to be king, or um, I did not name myself king because I picked an English name. It was actually just a phonetic Cantonese word for uh, "be watchful," um, and that's how it was translated. But anyway, um, cool. <laughs> um, that's so, that's so I, cool. Okay. Yeah, I I grew up in Hong Kong, where um, uh, scientific research is really not a common career so I did not know you know that it was a legitimate career honestly Uh, I've always been fascinated with biology you know my family and I would go on hikes and watch documentaries and I've always been fascinated but when you watch a biology documentary usually you see people uh, exploring in the woods and you know going to all these like remote ends of the world finding rare species and i always thought that that was not a valid career like i don't want to be just traveling to nowhere (laughs) um so i i i didn't know that scientific research would have been uh like a stable vad career until i uh in the middle of college when i started doing undergrad research um and i so i worked with Dr. David Kimmelman during my undergrad on uh, embryonic development. So we did some work on looking at gene expression programs in uh, 
uh, in certain cell populations in zebrafish embryos and trying to figure out how these expression programs uh, um, you know, drive formation of specific tissues in the embryo. And that got me really excited about just the complexity of all these different cell programs and how coordinated they are uh, and how important that is for just normal, normal um, functions, right? Um, and really, um, that's mainly what got me into cancer. Is, uh, if you think about cancer biology, um, you're, you're asking the very simple question of, you have some cells that are growing out of control, so they're not doing what they're normally supposed to do. So the first thing you have to figure out is what are they normally supposed to do? And then you say, okay, what are they doing differently, right? So pretty much all of cancer biology is trying to figure out, you know, what is normal and now what is different. Um, and that's fascinating to me. Interesting. Um, it's so curious. I mean, like, at least for me, I was always, I always romanticized like biologists, you know, who go on ships or go out in the jungle. And then in reality for me, like you stay in lab all day. So I was like, oh, so maybe you're the opposite. I mean, that's why you're so good. You just like, you love the lab. Sometimes, sometimes people love the lab, right? Or, you know, I think I like being outside. Yeah. <laughs> the opposite. That's so fascinating. And so when you were an undergrad, that seems to be like a pivotal moment. Um, you know, was there like a certain time or was there a certain like thing that made, me, made you realize I want to be a scientist? Was it mentorship from uh, your PI? Was it a you know, joining the lab for the first time? Was it a class? Was it a paper? Or kind of what was the thing that triggered you to say, hey, I want to be, maybe you love science, but you want to be a professional scientist. Which yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. I did have very good mentors along my journey. Um, um, my PI, David Kimmelman, was also my biochemistry professor at the time. And he gave just awesome lectures mm -hmm. on he just made very complicated um ideas so simple and so easy to understand uh and that's why i joined his lab in the first place and i actually worked with a postdoc in the lab um, who taught me how to be independent how to how to be do rigorous science um and that had a huge impact on me as well but really i think i i I clearly remember a moment when I did uh, one of my first um, in situ hybridization experiments in the lab. So you, uh, the, the goal of the experiment was to detect gene, a particular gene that may be expressed in a subset of cells in an embryo, right? So you, you, um, you, you fix and treat the embryo and then you add a probe that recognizes the gene and then and then parts of the embryo lights up uh, and you say, oh, those parts uh, are expressing the gene. Um, on paper, it sounds so convoluted, but then you do the experiment and then you actually look at under the microscope and it's just, it's so beautifully shows, you know, um, patterns of, um gene expression that makes sense um and that's uh, that's always been surprising to me even now is that things make sense um 
it's, it's, you know, because things are so complicated, it, wouldn't it be more likely that most of them don't make sense? Although, um, <laughs> if, if things are beyond your comprehension, maybe you just are not aware of those things in the first place. But I don't know. It's always been super. Actually, wasn't it Albert Einstein who said something like, um, it's surprising or in, it's incomprehensible that the rules of the universe are comprehensible to us, right? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't the rules of the universe be incomprehensible? <laughs> um, but that's, yeah, that's always been something that, I don't know if it motivates me to do science, but it certainly keeps me um, um, intrigued and fascinated. Yeah, I think a lot of great scientists. Did your first experiment work or did it fail? Oh, my first experiment was probably, uh, it worked, but it was also meant to be a training experiment. Like it was meant to work. It was meant to be easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's good, right? It gets your confidence going. Yeah, I think development of biology is really probably the most beautiful of the biologies because you can have these really distinct patterns. I think you have Drosophila amazes me. Like you said, right, you have like a whole systematic set of factors that drive, you know, development across a fly embryo. Mm -hmm. And then that's across in humans and zebrafish and everything, every other animal. So uh, yeah. I totally agree. It's like weird. I'm a geneticist. And so, you know, there's certain simple rules, simple formulas that describe genetic phenomena, which is like, shouldn't be the case, but it is. And yeah, it's, it's fat. I think you're right. I think it's, it's most things shouldn't work in biology maybe, but they do. And so that gets into maybe like, like why, why, why not why, maybe, maybe how do we just uncover these rules then? That's kind of the thing into developing better tools. And so you went to Washington, come on to labs in Washington, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. That's right. You Washington. And so, you know, you're making that transition from undergrad to grad school. Um, how did that go? What was the logic there? Did you, did you, I think you went straight to grad school. No, um, I took three years off. Oh, you did? That's why you're so good. No wonder. <laughs> exactly. You got to take a break. You can't go straight to grad school. You got to. So what did you do in between? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's good to get more experience. And that really helps when you're trying to get into grad school. They really want a lot of research experience. But uh, aside from that, it's good to try something different. You know, you you work in a lab uh, for a year or two in your undergrad. And then that's really all the research that you know about. But uh, it's good to try something different and ask, you know, do I want to go in a different direction? Do I want to stay in relatively the same field? Um, after undergrad, I worked uh, in David Rawlings' lab, uh, also in Seattle, the Seattle Children's Research Institute. Yeah. Um, and I. I was still very fascinated by the cell differentiation program. So in that lab, it was more of a cell engineering lab. So uh, I used um, ex vivo culturing protocols and gene editing protocols to um, try to differentiate primary human cells to make therapeutic products. Um, and um, yeah, that, that was also uh, a great time for me. Um, um, and I just decided, you know, I've gone the very basic biology route for a while, and then I've gone the 
you know, more translational or not translational, but more applied research route for a while. And I wanted something in between. I wanted some something that addresses uh, basic biology questions, but would also have the potential to be applied in the future um, in therapy or just in any way that would improve people's lives. Um, so that's what got me into cancer. Cool. And yeah, Howard Chang is the best, you know, one of the best in the world for that. Um, yeah. so good for you. And it's okay. You joined Howard Chang's lab and Howard is, he's, he's well known for so many, so much stuff, genomics, yeah. long non coding RNA, cancer. And I never met the guy, but he seems like a sweetheart from, from his talks. He's like a really nice person, uh, which is pretty rare. Uh, and so, um, yeah, how did you, what was the kind of the initial projects in the Chang lab and, 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 and how did that build up? We can talk about the nature paper. Uh, mm -hmm. how did that build up to the, to that, at least your first nature paper? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I joined the lab because I was mainly fascinated by the idea of, uh, uh, gene regulation by the non-coding genome, right? So, um, the idea that you have um, your DNA, which is the source code, which makes, you know, which have the protein coding genes, which get tr uh, transcribed into RNA and translated into proteins. But most of the genome is not coding. So what is it? 98, 99% of the genome is non-coding. Um, and it's not junk, you know, it, it has all these regulatory elements such as enhancers that interact with the coding genes. Uh, which then decide what genes are active and what genes are not active. Um, and I just felt like there's um, a, a huge space there to explore, you know? And uh, when I came to the lab in 2019, um, there had been a couple of high profile papers on extra chromosomal DNA um, that had just been published um, in that year or the uh, couple of years before that, um, suggesting, well, actually this is, uh, we can talk a bit more about this field, but yeah. um, it, you know, the idea of um, oncogene amplification is a very important one in cancer biology. It's been known for a long time that, you know, oncogenes um, provide a selective advantage to cancer cells and allow them to, uh, uh, grow and proliferate um, and sometimes one way to make more of the oncogene RNA is just amplify the gene copy. So if you have 50, 100 copies of the oncogene, then the cell is going to have selective advantage and it's going to be able to grow and expand. Um, and it's also been known actually for decades that this, this sort of oncogene amplification can happen outside of chromosomes. So, you know, normally uh, you have the 23 pairs of chromosomes, 46 chromosomes, but you can have, um, in a lot of cancer cells, uh, the genome is so messed up that you could have extra stuff. So this extra chromosomal DNA or ECDNA, is, uh, we're referring to clonally selected circular molecules that are megabases in size that carry, um, oncogenes or really any like drug resistance genes or gene, any genes that provide selective advantages. And we see, we, we see them 
fairly frequently. Um, I think uh, ECDNA has been observed in something like half of all the human cancer types and a quarter of all cases. And it, it can be um, much more frequent in certain cancer types like glioblastoma or neoblastoma. So um, when I, but at the time I joined the lab, it seemed like a very interesting field there was a couple of high profile papers, but there, a lot of the biology was still unknown. So for example, at the time it was described that um, ECDNAs uh, are more, have more, um, have higher chromatin accessibility than expected. Mm -hmm. um, they allow higher transcription of oncogenes, but it's not, it's not well understood why that's the case. Um, and so it, my, my initial project really was, um, you know, find out what is different about ECDNA compared to chromosomal DNA. Oh. Um, and so we started um, from an imaging approach. Um, the idea was just to try to validate this observation that ECDNAs make more of the oncogene transcript. So the idea was, um, you take cells with ECDNA and then you do something called fluorescence in situ hybridization, which detects uh, simultaneously uh, DNA copies and RNA transcripts in the same cells. And then you image the cells and ask where things are coming from. And we did uh, target both e ECDNA and the chromosomal DNA and found that there's way more transcript uh, way more transcripts coming from ECDNA compared to chromosomal DNA. But what was fascinating was that most of the transcriptional events were happening within clusters of ECDNA. Um, and so that's what um, um, started this whole project that led to the paper. Yep, I think the yeah, the key key breakthrough we researched the nature paper and a lot more is that like ECD these these extra chromosomal and the DNAs, you know, they if they bunch together like in ten to a hundred, between ten to a hundred. I don't know that there's a, some sort of relationship in the paper. I forgot, but there's definitely a massive, not a mass, but a kind of a significant increase in, yeah. in gene expression if they form these communities or hubs. And so yeah. maybe take a step back in terms of like the field of ECDNA. And I think maybe last time we spoke, you're doing some research that's like one of the most the hottest fields in cancer biology right now. So what you're doing is really valuable. This you know that. So just to plant that seed, you're not only doing research that's important, but really valuable. So um, that's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so you're gonna do. You can post a lot of papers, but hopefully you'll do very well too for yourself. And that's uh, I'll, I'll be sure to help you there. But um, we step back about ECDNA and where the field has been because it's one of these old fields that has become new. Right? Yeah. Well, really, like decades, maybe a century. If you had a microscope, you can. And you, had, you see cancer cells. You can you can see these kind of uh, high enough resolution. You know, see that X chromosomal DNA are in cancer cells at a higher rate, and there's chromosomal abnormalities uh, in cancer. It's one of these hallmarks of cancer. And so, what changed recently to make it easier for you, maybe others, to actually study? Um, um, I don't know what to call these these structures or whatever these these nuclear structures. And 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 map out its art, their architecture and function. 
that seems to be kind of a recent change the last few years. Like, what, what, what do you think, what's enabled you to do this type of work and maybe others? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, like you said, it's a very old field that has a lot of renewed interest. Um, you know, the ECDNA molecules were first described, I think, in the 1960s. Um, back then, they didn't even, they weren't even sure. I mean, I think they eventually figured out that these are actually chromatin bodies, but at first it was not immediately clear that these dots that you see on chromosome spreads are not just contamination, right? You know, you have your chroma chromosomes, which have the characteristic ribbon-looking structure, and then you have these dots that are outside of chromosomes. Um, they eventually figured out that these are chromatin bodies, um, and then subsequent work in the next decade or so um, beautifully deduced just logically that uh, because these structures seem to have been selected um, in a lot of uh, tumor samples, they must, they provide, they probably provide the selective advantage and they probably contain genetic elements that uh, um, allow cells to proliferate more. They didn't even know about oncogenes at the time. They just thought <laughs> there's extra bits of chromatin and it probably yeah. provides a selective advantage. Um, so it's really beautiful how people could figure things out like that. Um, and then since then, there has been a lot of groundbreaking work on just characterizing the features and frequencies of um, ECDNA in cancer. But I think um, the reason why there's been so much interest in recent years is because now we have all these sequencing tools, uh, imaging tools that we can use to really describe these structures with much higher resolution than before. Um, and what we find is that there's a lot of um, uh, heterogeneity in the structure and, um, and copy numbers of ECDNA within a cancer cell population that is really important for driving cellular heterogeneity in a tumor. Um, and so to capture this high level of heterogeneity, um, you know, you're looking at um, DNA sequences that are rearranged in complicated ways. You're dealing with data coming from a large number of cells. So really just having the computational tools and having these sequencing technologies helped a lot in um, answering a lot of these questions. And so when you think about the research you did, what were, what were some of the key tools the what your workhorse tools to kind of discover these kind of ECDNA hubs. You know, I'm assuming yeah. single cells. I'm assuming just sequencing in general, uh, but there was also you, you did CRISPR eye screening at the end to validate. But what kind of the what kind of get to like lay lay the line of your toolkit here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do a lot of sequencing. Yeah. Uh, from from short read sequencing to long read nanopore sequencing. Um, and then, yeah, functional perturbation like CRISPR interference uh, to, you know, try to, you say something about the functionality of a genetic element to prove it, you have to perturb it and say, okay, this is what changes. Uh, so all these things are 
like you said, workhorse um, tools for me. Uh, we had a big imaging component in that paper describing the, um, the clustering and just general spatial uh, distribution of ECDNA molecules in the cell nucleus. Um, uh, but really that speaks, actually, that speaks to how important teamwork is in science. Because you had Tijin on the paper, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah because that's, that's what they're good at. They, they, they do high resolution imaging, um, and they combine, you know, all these modalities like RNA, DNA visualization, um, and we're we don't do that. So, if you look at the paper, you'll say, "Wow, there's like twenty different technologies that are used here." But also, if you look at the author list, there are probably fifty people on the author list, and really, it's because it's impossible for one person to do all of those things. And I think. Um, that's uh, um, probably um, illustrates a very important point, which is if you want to do um, robust, good science, um, I wouldn't say it's impossible to do it alone, but it's often much easier to do it with a bunch of other experts. Um, and not only can you incorporate their expertise, um, sometimes just by talking to people who are good at different things, you come up with new ideas that would not otherwise come to you. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, collaborating with people who are the best at what they do is really awesome. So you can find people who are the best microscopy people and then collaborate with the best cancer people. Uh, and that's kind of becomes very fruitful. Could you maybe describe for the paper like what the, the key experiment was? Like we had a broad overview of like, you know, you have to bring all these tools together and I'm sure we have all these different types of people and to take these samples and sequence them and image them. What was that kind of like that supply chain? How did you go from a cell line and then to a readout? What was the kind of the, the steps there? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, we had, I would say, um, we collaborated with probably four or five main groups um, a lot. <laughs> a lot. It was a lot. Um, so, so there, even just for one project, it grew to a point where we would have almost subgroups <laughs> that would meet Please. separately uh, to, you know, talk about experiments that would have to be done to, to achieve an, the same overarching goal, but uh, different sub goals. So we had, um, you know, a whole group of people who focused on imaging, uh, a whole group of people who focused on uh, molecular chromatin confirmation capture, which is, you know, looking at genomic loci that are in contact with other uh, each other in the nucleus. Um, we had a separate subgroup uh, with people who um, make computer software. So they, because a lot of this, much of the study was very data intensive. Um, we had to um, customize, um, you know, some um, computational workflows to deal with the amount of data. And um, there are people who who um, make very robust, um, useful bioinformatic tools to deal with this kind of data. So we had a whole group for that. Um, so. It was a it was a complicated structure, but um, 
um, it was very important for, you know, trying to trying to do all these things that are each individually so complicated. Yep, that makes sense. I think uh, I mean, image files are really large. I think they're bigger than freaking sequencing files. So like yeah. you see, he's Louise. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Uh, and so maybe we can talk about then like the, you, you have this ability to sequence ECDNA, image them as well and figure out where they cluster. What did you discover? You really made a really fascinating discovery around not only these hubs, but then these tethers. Yeah. Right? There's certain proteins that tether these hubs together. So if the ECDNAs are clustering together, they're doing so via these tethers. Maybe you can talk about uh, what these tethers are, what they do potentially do. You know, you use the chemical perturbation um, as well as genetic perturbation to kind of suss this out. Maybe you can talk about, just maybe you transition towards the hubs and why they're important, especially in disease, especially in cancer. Yeah, yeah. So the main point of the paper was that um, um, ECDNA clustering seems to be very important for driving oncogene transcription. So, so when you have strong clustering, you get more transcriptional output. And then when you disperse these hubs, um, you get less oncogene expression. So um, the uh, one aspect of the study was we use, like you said, chemical perturbations to target um, a protein family um, called the uh, bromo domain protein family. Uh, um, this family of proteins, uh, specifically BRD4, um, has been shown to be uh, specifically important for the MYC, uh, um, expression of the MYC oncogene. Yep. Um, so we found out that when we, when we perturbed um, these proteins, um, it led to not just a decrease in MYC expression coming from ECDNA, but also dispersal of ECDNA hubs. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, well, if, if, the, if clustering is important for transcription and you break up clustering, you can also decrease transcription. Could this be used as a therapeutic opportunity, right? So in theory, if, you, if, if this is universal, um, you could, theoretically target the tether, the protein tether that's holding the ECDNA hubs together. Um, and by breaking up the ECDNA hubs, you would decrease oncogene expression, which would be bad for the cancer cells, but good for you, the cancer patient. Um, but um, I would say it's a very promising concept. What probably people have to figure out is the universal, uh, the how universal this is. So, um, you know, is this true for all cancers that have ECDNAs? Is it true only for you know a subset of oncogene amplicons like MYC? It seems it's important, uh, but there's also other oncogenes like EGFR, FGFR two, which have also been shown to be frequently amplified on ECDNA. Is there is there any specificity to the oncogene itself, right? And then also, let's say if this is a universal uh, phenomenon, uh, we also have to figure out, um, you know, is the protein tether is the protein tether universal or is it also specific to different cancer types, right? In this case, it's uh, the bromo domain proteins or BRD4. Um, it might be a different protein in a different 
uh, in a different cancer type or a different oncogene family. So um, I think it could be a very promising therapeutic tool, but there's uh, more uh, there's more work to be done. Um, and yeah, there's uh, there's um, a lot of work that's ongoing now in our group um, that's trying to address these problems, these questions. Um, but yeah, we're all very excited about this. I mean, you just published a paper last year, so I would be very surprised if a drug gets created in next few years. It's gonna take a long. It's gonna take a long time. Yeah, uh, at least a decade to begin to you know, answer all these questions you laid out of, you know, the context of these hubs and these tethers and, you know, but but at a high level, it's a pretty important breakthrough in can in cancer because you know a lot of these MIC, for example, is undruggable right now, and so. If you can find a new strategy to disrupt MIC expression in cancer selectively through these tethers or through ECDNA, that's really exciting and yeah. can, you know, solve a massive problem. Because you know, if you can, probably the biggest opportunity in cancer is the undruggable genome. Is there's these oncogenes that are really hard to drug, and so if you can find indirect ways to pursue them, that's going to help a lot of patients. And so, yeah. No, that's a great point. I mean, uh, their proteins are undruggable, but now you're targeting upstream of that. You know, yeah. uh, you you find out something abnormal about the source and, code. And selective and selective, though. Yeah, that's being selective. That ECDNA is a hallmark of cancer, or at least a lot of ECDNA. Yeah. So if you can like begin to under what research you're doing is really important to characterize the the architecture, so to speak, of these extra chromosomal arrays. And then begin to, that's what you know, Howard Chang's known for that, right? Structure function relationships using genomics, mm -hmm. right? He's like the master of it. So um, I think there's, it's like a decade's worth of work here, probably. But maybe you can also talk about maybe, so you did this research. When you do this research, often good work creates new problems. And so what kind of new problems did you unveil with at least that nature paper? And maybe it led to this new paper you're having, you're getting published soon. Yeah, that, that, that's also a great question. Um, um, some of the questions that it raised um, definitely include um, uh, those things like, you know, how universal these um, features are and um, if they are universal, what if, um, can you find the universal factor that's tethering the ECDNA hubs? If they're not universal, could you, could you um, find out more about the the relationship between oncogene structure or oncogene structure, oncogene um, amplicon and cancer type um, to the formation of ECDNA hubs and utilize that information to better inform you know what to do therapeutically? Um, that's definitely a um, big question that would have to be answered next. And then also from the study, what we found was th there's just a lot of structural diversity in the repertoire of ECDNA molecules, even in the same uh, cancer sample. Um, and then also we, we tried to use a lot of sequencing techniques to identify these structures. And it was very difficult because not only do you have a lot of um, diverse 
ECDNA species containing different genetic elements that are um, coexisting in the same sample. You also have chromosomal DNA still, and, and you have to somehow figure out what signal is coming from ECDNA and what signal is coming from chromosomal DNA. And so that led to the next part of my work, which is finding a way to isolate and separate um, ECDNA molecules from chromosomal molecules and using that as a tool to um, profile ECDNA in a more targeted way. So, um, so that's what I've been working on in the past um, uh, six to nine months or so cool. is um, um, finding a method that would allow us to do that. And it turns out to be very simple and I can talk about it a little bit. Um, so the, this idea came from a few papers that were published in the 80s where people described um, um, cancer cells containing ECDNA. And so they what they did was they, they took the genomic DNA and just ran it on a gel. So this is uh, similar to your normal DNA electrophoresis, except this is post-field electrophoresis, which allows you to separate larger pieces of DNA. But they ran the DNA on the gel and found that the DNA, when it's intact, gets trapped in the well. Mm -hmm. But if you bombard it with uh, a lot of radiation, it runs into the gel, which makes sense because your DNA is getting fragmented. But if you have a circular molecule, it runs into the gel and shows up as a very distinct clear band. And that makes sense because uh, if you bombard it with radiation, but uh, it's breaking the DNA infrequent enough, most of the time you'll have a single break in the circle, right? Mm -hmm. So a single break in the circle would lead to a, sing a single size of DNA fragment, and it would show up as a distinct band. So what this proved was when the circle is intact, it gets trapped in the well. But when you break it, it runs into the gel. So the idea was now we have CRISPR. So instead of just using radiation, we could use CRISPR to make a cut on the circle. And then the circle would run into the gel, and you can extract it. And you can do all sorts of genetic and epigenetic analysis on, on these circles. So um, we were able to optimize this method, um, which is called CRISPR-Catch. <laughs> um, and um, you can use it to you know, just find genetic mutations that are specific to ECDNA. Um, you could also look at things like um, DNA methylation, um, and if you have multiple species of ECDNAs with different structures, they would show up as different bands. So you could extract the different bands and identify all the complicated structures that are coexisting in the sample. Um, and so I think I'm really excited about this study because I think you know it really opens up the window for a lot uh, more targeted analyses on ECDNA. You probably find more diversity than people expect, right? I'm assuming it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, diversity of around chromatin accessibility, modifications. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's the weed. You, you know what? Your research only creates so many other research projects. It's like, it's like, oh, you got to do paper. And it's like, well, now we have a decade's worth of work now. So good for you. That's good research, right? Good research creates a lot of new problems. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. So. 
you're like a professional problem creator. So you just do research and then you create problems for other people and then they have to solve them. And so, um, and so maybe on that note, how do you think about like the broader field of genomics, extra chromosomal DNA? You know, what excites you? Do you see yourself kind of focusing on ECDNA or do you have maybe going to non-coding genomics in general and, and like long non-coding RNAs and small RNAs? How do you think about, how do you think about your career and also at the field in general and how you want to fit in over the next maybe five to 10 years? Mm. Um, so I think my past, the past three years of or so of my work on ECDNA has gotten me really excited about the idea that um, DNA is not just a two-dimensional molecule, right? It's not just ATGC from start to finish. It's it's a it's a three-dimensional molecule that is um, organized and folded in a very specific way in the nucleus. Um, and ECDNA is just uh, you know an abnormal form of this, where now you have a piece of DNA that breaks off from the normal site and it's now somewhere else in the nucleus. Um, and this change of um, spatial organization has a lot of implications on how gene expression and really probably many other um, important cellular processes are regulated. Um, and so I think in the long term, I'm really excited about um, just generally asking how um, the spatial organization of the cancer genome um, is, um, is, uh, is altered and how this altered spatial organization um, changes fundamental cell processes like um, gene expression, DNA replication, DNA repair. Um, and I think there's a lot of directions I can go, um, but generally I think this is a very exciting direction for me. Yeah, maybe it's like connected to your college research where it's like getting fascinating development and you know I, i've done fish experiments before and they're pretty cool i'll be honest with you it's like, whoa, yeah. they're cool experiments like things light up and you start seeing patterns and it's cool when you do like a time-lapse video of something yeah. especially on a cell line or i remember doing uh like multi-staining it's like, whoa look at all the colors and i can see why you got it i got in i not as much as you did but it was fascinating to me and so maybe in cancer, you're kind of doing something similar. You're mapping out kind of these core components of cancer development and, and, and maybe, you know, uncovering, you know, parts of the genome that people think are, you know, hidden or dark or junk and connected them to, you know, cancer and metastasis of cancer, the growth of cancer. And, and then that, that ultimately will probably have an impact on patients. <laughs> like what you're doing sooner or later will lead to something valuable for patients whether it's a drug or something else because you know there's often these like you know ecdna is one of these fields like one of these old fields i'm always fascinated with old fields that like are new and so like extra chromosomal dna is in that bucket of something that's known for decades but only recently has been kind of become better understood and so like if you had to like uh give a perspective or some thoughts on like what do you think the challenges would be to translate this research into products? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think there'll be, there'll need to be a lot of screening, right? So um, I think, let's say 
um, let's say um, we find that there's just something fundamentally different about gene transcription on ECDNA, maybe because of the spatial organization of it, maybe it's because of the inherent circular structure of it, maybe it's because of how the amplicon was formed initially. Um, but let's say there's something just unique about the regulation of transcription. What you have to find, what you really want to find is, you know, unique transcriptional dependencies of cancers that have ECDNA. What that probably means is that you'll have to do a lot of chemical screens, um, do a lot of CRISPR screens and figure out, you know, just wh what is, what do ECDNAs depend on? Like, are there things that are important that when you take out, um, it will, it will um, target those specific cancers, right? Um, so, and then um, in parallel, I think there's, um, you know, that you nowadays see a lot of genomics papers that are trying to characterize um, large numbers of patients and their uh, genomic alterations and um, gene expression that are correlated with different therapeutic outcomes, right? Um, and the same has not really been fully done on ECDNA. And part of that is because, um, you know, it's not just about digging the genomics data. It's also figuring out when you have amplification of an oncogene, where is it amplified? Is it extra-chromosomal? Is it a different tandem repeats? Is it how, like, just, um, I think what the past few years of research has shown is that the context of a, a genome alterations really matters. Yeah. And so um, trying to incorporate that into large-scale studies um, that also include looking at patient outcomes um, in response to maybe different chemotherapies, immunotherapies. Um, um, I think I think those studies will really answer a lot of these open questions. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a, lot of work. That's a ton of work. I, yeah. I think you're 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 kind of on spot on though. The context matters here, whereas your research is kind of laying the groundwork in the series of principles of ECDNA. But you know it's biology, and it's everything's context dependent. It depends on the disease. It depends on the cell type. It depends on a lot of things. So, um, ton of work left to be done, and we'll probably you'll be, you'll start your own lab one day, and you know you'll be pursuing these problems. I'm I'm assuming there's a bunch of other people working on this stuff too. But uh, cool. I think it's it's a great conversation. Thanks for doing this. Uh, I think it's gonna be really useful to a bunch of people. But it's a sunny Friday right now. It's Friday. We'll probably publish this next week. But it's Friday. It's sunny down in Palo right now. It's yes. sunny in Palo Yeah, so get, do you have any lab? I'm assuming you have some lab experiments or you have to wrap up. But, uh, you know, it was a great chatting. And, uh, you know, have a great Friday. And we'll talk soon. Yeah, this was very fun. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely.